Let's open our Bibles now, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 9. Before I get into the message tonight, some of you may be wondering about the title to this message. 1973, Bob Dylan wrote a song for uh, the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and the name of the song was Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door. About six years ago, it was right after I became pastor of the church. I think it was in the first month after I became pastor. I, I preached a message with that title, Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And when we printed out the title of the message before I preached it, there were lots of people wondering, did they do the right thing? when they chose me to be pastor because I had a Bob Dylan song as the title of the message. But I hope that some of the fears were allayed because I, I used that title to teach how that Jesus is the door of salvation and how we must knock on his door. And not only must we knock on it, but we must enter in through that door. And he's the only way that we can be saved. Well, I thought about that message when we come to Revelation chapter 9 tonight. Because in verse 1, it tells us about a key that is given to the, for the bottomless pit. There exists a key to the bottomless pit. And behind that locked door, there are demonic beings. And they're straining to get out. And they can't get out until someone comes along and opens that door. Now, I don't know whether to link this bottomless pit that we're going to talk about tonight to hell itself... I don't know if it leads to a compartment in hell. I suspect that it does. But there are hellish creatures that are behind that door. And I'm glad that I'm not going to be around when that door is open. Now tonight we're continuing our study about the seventh seal on redemption scroll. Uh, that is the title deed to the earth. And the title deed has seven seals on it. And when each one of those seals is broken, there's a terrible judgment that's poured out upon the earth. And the seventh seal that we're studying now is the worst one of all because this is the one that is the final battle or leads to the final battle for the earth. Under the seventh seal, there are seven angels with seven trumpets. There are a different grouping of these trumpets. There are four trumpets that are grouped together and then comes the next three. And when we come here to Revelation chapter 9, the first four of those trumpets have sounded and now comes those last three. And these are really frightening and just utterly unimaginable for us. Well, tonight we're going to study the fifth trumpet as we knock on hell's door. So let's uh, look, if you would, please, in Revelation chapter 9. If you'd stand with me, please. We're going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Revelation chapter 9, beginning at verse number 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the will of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as of the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, 
and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one who's come tonight for the study of your word. We ask you, Lord, that you'd give us some understanding of what you have here in the book of Revelation. Terrible time that's coming upon the earth. For those of us who are saved, who know you, we have no fear of these times. And even though we're talking about demons tonight, we have no fear of demons because we know that you are more powerful and your Holy Spirit lives within us. Blessing the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the eighth chapter, we saw that there were four trumpets that were blown by four angels. And the four trumpets that those angels blew bring a judgment directly upon the earth. We learned about how vegetation is burned up, how the waters are polluted, how that sea life dies, how that the sun, the source of the earth's light and heat and the stars, those are blacked out. And then after those judgments, there's an angel that flies in heaven, and he comes with a solemn warning, and he says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. And so chapter 9 begins with the blowing of a second group of trumpets, and these are not trumpets that have judgments upon this planet earth, but rather these are, are trumpets that are blown to inflict pain and suffering directly upon men. Now, the fifth trumpet is described in these 12 verses that we've read tonight, and this relates to the unleashing of a terrible horde of demons upon the earth that will pursue men and inflict a very horrible sting. Verse number 1 says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, first we're going to talk tonight about the destroyer. In verse number or chapter number 8, I should say, there's a star that falls from the heavens. And the star that we see there must be something like a meteor or as, as a comet that crosses the path of the earth and then poisons one-third of the earth's fresh water. That's a star that's inanimate. But here we see that there's a different kind of star in verse number 1 of chapter 9, because you'll notice here that in chapter 9, this star has a personal pronoun attached. The star here is called him. And so that tells us that the star here is used in a symbolic way. And we've talked about the use of symbols versus things that are literal. And here is a place where we can tell that this is a symbolic star because, and it relates to someone who is a real person. And uh, here I have no doubt in my mind that it must be talking about Lucifer. Here it's talking about Satan, the one who, in the book of Isaiah, tried to exalt himself above the stars of God. There he's called the sun of the morning, which literally translated means the day star. And so I believe that this is Satan, and we have a reference here to Satan's fall. John says, I saw a star fall from heaven. Now actually, the word for fall there in the Greek is a past tense word. It means fallen. 
I saw a star that had fallen, so it's in past tense, and it doesn't mean that Satan fell when John saw him, but that he had already fallen from heaven. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And so rather than seeing a star fall, John saw Lucifer, he saw this star, this angel that had already fallen. And here he says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. I want you to notice two things here about Lucifer. First, Satan does only what he is allowed. Now, Satan tried to exalt himself above God, but as powerful as he is, he has no power except what God allows him to have. Now, Satan would love to have free reign upon this earth. He'd love to uh, wreak as much havoc as he possibly can in any kind of supernatural way that he can. He'd like to destroy this world if he could and destroy God's people if he could. But God only allows Satan to have so much power. Now today, while the church is the plan and the program for God in this world, Satan has had his power limited by Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter sixteen eighteen, 18, uh, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so we know that the church can never be destroyed because Satan's power is limited. He has no power except what God allows him to have. But in this time of the tribulation, especially those, these last three and a half years of tribulation, we know the church is already gone. It's been raptured and taken out of the world. And now Satan's power will begin to increase. And that's because God allows him more latitude. God is going to lift the restraining power that he has over much of the evil that takes place in the world. I didn't give you the scripture on your lesson sheet tonight, but you might want to read Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and it'll tell you a little bit there about how the restraining power of God will be lifted. And so devil, the devil is turned loose, and, and there are people today, lost people, that ought to recognize you ought to, if a person is lost, he ought to be happy that God has restraining power and that evil in the world is restricted because if Satan had as much power as he desires to have right now, we would be facing tribulation-type effects. But God limits that power. Now here we see that God gives Satan the key to the bottomless pit. So what does Satan do? Well, Satan opens the gate of the abyss. Now, this is one of the most fascinating parts of Scripture. It's really hard not to be interested in this because these are the kinds of things that pique people's interest. I mean, naturally it does that. But I want to caution everyone here tonight, be very careful about what you become interested in. Now, if you're going to be interested in such things, then take it all in the light of God's Word because what we're talking about here are forces of darkness. It's an evil that we certainly do not want to mess with. Well, there are many people that like to dabble in the occult and they think that that's maybe perhaps harmless and they like to delve into these things about demonic powers. Don't become too interested in that. I mean, the devil has ways to work with curious minds and the devil can entrap people. He can put them into evil that they couldn't even imagine. And some things the devil does, uh, we know, without the absolute power of God, we cannot resist. And for lost people especially, you would never want to mess with the devil because he can lead you into paths and ways that you simply do not want to go. So I would encourage anybody, if you have a Ouija board, I don't know if anybody has one of those anymore, but if you had one, throw it out. And uh, if you read horoscopes in the newspaper and you pay attention to those kinds of things, stop it. It has no bearing at all on the life of a Christian or a lost person either. It's demonic, and you ought not to have a part of it. So don't read that stuff. 
Now here, though, Satan is given the key to the bottomless pit. And that tells us that Satan does not have that key right now. God is the one who controls hell. And many people are confused about that. They think Satan is the one who controls hell, but he doesn't. God is the one who controls it, and not until God allows him to do whatever he's going to do will Satan ever have any type of control. Now, bottomless here is an interesting word because this is the same word from which we get our word abyss. And the abyss is a place where God has placed countless numbers of fallen angels that followed Satan in his original rebellion. Satan has legions of angels that help him now. I mean, the numbers of evil angels that have been turned loose to uh, do Satan's bidding in the world is probably an unimaginable number, far beyond what we could even comprehend. Millions upon millions and millions of millions of evil angels that work all throughout the world. But the fact of the matter is, Satan does not have at his disposal all of the evil angels that originally fell with him. Because God has taken some of those angels and he has chained them up and he's put them in a place, in the abyss, in a place where they're awaiting their judgment. Now, these, I think, would lead us to believe are the, must be the very worst of all the evil angels and some of the most powerful And we find a reference to their incarceration in in Jude, verse number 6, where it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Peter also references this in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, where he's talking about uh, evil angels, and, uh, or rather false teachers, and he shows how that's somewhat of a comparison to how God will treat false teachers. But he says in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And so here you have evil angels that have been in this pit of the abyss for thousands upon thousands of years, chained there from the very beginning of the creation of this world, and they have been chomping at the bit, trying to be released. This abyss must truly be a horrific place because there are angels, these evil angels that are in the world today, and the last place that they want to be sent is to this place that God has chained evil angels. They do not want to be in the abyss. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 8 for just a moment. And you may remember the story of a demoniac in Luke chapter 8. And we're going to read about here some demons that possessed a man and made him a lunatic. And there were thousands of these demons that were in this man. This is in Luke chapter 8. And we'll start reading at verse number 27. And when he went forth to land, this is speaking about Jesus... And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him. He was kept bound with chains and fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there a herd of swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. 
And he suffered them or allowed them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. Now look there at verse number 31 again. And they besought him that he would not command them to go into the deep. And the word deep there is the word abyss. It's the very same word that we find in Revelation chapter 9. And so these fallen angels that were inhabiting this man did not want to go into the abyss. And so they would rather inhabit pigs than they would to be tormented before their time. And so you have all of these evil angels that are in the abyss and now comes their their chance to be released. Satan is here given a chance to set them free. And so I can imagine that Satan with glee goes over to that locked gate of the abyss and he gladly puts in that key and turns it and looses these old buddies of his to help him to wreak havoc over the earth. Now here's what happens when that gate swings open. We find it in the second verse of chapter 9. And he opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. W.A. Criswell has an interesting comment about this verse. Uh, He talks about how that he had made a visit to Carlsbad Caverns. Anybody ever been there before? Uh, We've been there a few times. There's a peculiar phenomenon at uh, Carlsbad Caverns because the the cave is inhabited by millions upon millions of bats that live in that cave. At, At evening... Those bats go out to feed. And as they do, there's this huge swarm, black swarm of flapping wings that comes out of that cave. And it looks like a great smoke almost that's coming out of the cave. W.A. Criswell said when he saw that, it reminded him of this chapter, of chapter 9. It was just like a great smoke that was rolling out of the cave. And so when Satan unlocks the gate, there's a swarm of demons that comes out. Smoke comes from out of the pit when it's open. Verse 3 says, And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, secondly, we look at tonight the destruction of these demons, the destruction. These demons swarm out of the pit with the ability to hurt men. Demons have unimaginable power. These are... Some of the worst, as I mentioned a moment ago, and their hatred for men is probably as substantial or almost equal to the the hatred that Lucifer has for men. And they come with a very special power to inflict a certain type of pain. Now, John describes it here first as pain like scorpions. If you'll skip down to verse number 10, it says, And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. So they have pain like scorpions. Anybody here ever been stung by a scorpion? I've never been stung by one. But I understand that the the pain of a scorpion is really a terrible pain. Now, a scorpion, at least the ones that we have in the United States, are not able to kill a person. Although I have heard that they, they can possibly kill a small child. But the pain that comes from a scorpion sting is an intense pain, excruciating pain. It brings on convulsions and paralysis. And usually the pain of a scorpion, although it's it's very intense, it goes away in about six to eight hours. Well, these are demons that inflict a far worse pain. They're restricted from killing men, and that's probably what they'd like to do more than anything else. But their power to kill is restricted. God restrains that because God does not want these men to die. 
God's intention here that these men who have rejected Christ will suffer. And so he allows these scorpions to come out or these demons to come out, these things that look like locusts are reminded uh, John of lo- as, as locusts to come out and to sting men and, and to cause them to suffer. And their suffering is going to have a much longer lasting effect than the sting of a normal scorpion. Now, verse number 10 gives an indication of the length of time that that sting hurts. The pain may last for up to five months. Now, there's a little bit of, little bit of argument, perhaps, about what he means by five months here. Does he mean the demons will be loose for five months, or does he mean that the pain will last for five months? And there are many people who believe that both things are intended here. And so if this is a sting that's able to hurt people for five months, then you can very well imagine why people wish that they could die. And if it doesn't last for the five months, there's an indication here that these uh, locusts, these scorpions, or demon-like creatures, they're able to sting men over and over again so that for that entire period of five months, at least there's going to be this pain. And so men will seek to die. Now look at verse number 5. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And then those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. So it may be possible that these demons sting men over and over and over again, and they have such power that no one is able to escape them. There's no place to hide. There is something that we notice about this, and this, this is that this kind of torment and the, these stinging demons have uh, a, a restriction put upon them because this is pain for lost men. This is limited. They can't hurt those that are sealed by God. So we would say then that they are powerless against the sealed. God has a mark upon his own people. Now remember, there are people that are living during the tribulation time who have heard the gospel message. Some of them will believe. There's that witness of the 144,000. So there are many of God's people that are living upon the earth at this time. And these demons, as they come, they won't be able to hurt those people. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, the scripture says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. You know, sometimes people ask me, is it possible for a demon to possess a believer? The answer to that question is no. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in order for a demon to possess a believer, there has to be enough room in that believer's body for both the Holy Spirit and that demon. And folks, there isn't enough room. The Holy Spirit comes and fills us. He's present in us, and a demon could never come into us because what he would have to do is to bind up the Holy Spirit and throw him out. And that's impossible. God's more powerful than the devil, and he's simply not going to let that happen. What God does, and we ought to thank him for this today, that God protects his people. And just like God protected Israel from the plagues that came upon Egypt, the Bible tells us that when the plagues came, there were flies upon the Egyptians, but there were no flies upon the Israelites It says there were boils on the Egyptians, but there were no boils upon God's people. It says that the Egyptians' cattle died, but not those that were in Israel. It tells us that there was hail and fire upon the Egyptians, but there wasn't any in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel lived. It says there was darkness, a darkness that could be felt upon the Egyptians. There was no light anywhere for them for three days. But it also says that in the houses of God's people, the Israelites, there was light. 
And so God protects his people. So these demons then, they're limited to the power that God allows. They're limited to the hurt that God allows. And they're limited to the time that God allows. And so when God's finished with them, what does he do? He binds them back up again, puts them in the bottomless pit, chains them up one more time, and then they have to await their judgment. So here we see then they're loosed by the destroyer. They're allowed to carry on much destruction. But then there's something else that's given to us in this passage. And the third thing we look at is the description. The description of these demons. You ever wondered what a demon looks like? Some of your kids, I know what they, <clears throat> what they look like. But in the Garden of Eden, Satan appeared as a beautiful serpent. You know, it's hard for us to think that way of a beautiful snake. But before the fall of man, snakes didn't crawl on their bellies. They were upright and they were beautiful creatures. And because Satan took on a serpent's body in order to entice Eve, that's the reason why God put a curse upon snakes. And that's why, for most of us, snakes are a very repulsive thing, a very disgusting thing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to sleep with a snake. I don't want to be near a snake. I don't want a snake in the same room with me. Uh, they're disgusting things. So what does a demon look like? Well, the Bible says that Satan most often appears as an angel of light. He's still doing that today. I mean, when he comes, he appears in a very enticing way. And we're not able to see Satan in the way that he really looks. I mean, he is a beautiful creature. Um, I, I mean, I need to back up on my statement just a little bit. I think by looking at Scripture that uh, Satan probably does not have the hideous uh, looks that are given to him sometimes in medieval paintings and things like that and different ideas that people have in movies, that Satan really doesn't look like that because he was a very, very beautiful creature when he's created. And I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where it says that has changed. Now, certainly he has a lot of characteristics that are horrible, but uh, he appears as an enticingly beautiful creature. The Bible also says that angels are able sometimes to appear as men. We see that in the Old Testament with Abraham and with others who are actually able to talk with angels and see angels. According to the movie industry, all the good angels look like Nicolas Cage and all the bad ones look like Al Pacino. But uh, angels really, they're, they're spirit beings. They're spirit beings. And it seems that if a demon were to materialize, and you could actually see a demon for what he really looks like, that he would be an awful sight. And what we may have here, actually, in Revelation chapter 9, is a description for us of what a demon might actually look like. That is, when they haven't put on their deceptive sheep's clothing. This may be what they look like. Now, let's see what John says about them. First of all, he, he talks about them as hordes of locusts. Now, they weren't real locusts because real locusts eat green living things. Very specifically, John says here that these locusts, or these demons, they didn't come to eat up green grass and things like that. They came to inflict pain upon men. In 1951 and 52, there was a terrible blight of locusts that came on the Middle East. And there were literally thousands upon thousands of square miles that were eaten by these locusts. And every green living thing that was there was completely destroyed. So locusts eat green living things. But these aren't interested in that. Now John thinks of them as locusts because that's the first thing that comes to his mind to describe the swarming aspect of them. They swarm like locusts. Now another way that we know that they aren't real Locust, and that, I mean, I'm talking about a, a locust like we know of that's really given some kind of a special power that God has put a stinger into a locust like we know it. One of the reasons we know that's not true is because here 
we see that John says they have a king over them. Verse 11 says, And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now, Abaddon and Apollyon mean the same thing, and the word means destroyer. And so this leader has some of the very same characteristics that Satan does. He's a destroyer. Evil angels have a hierarchy, just like there is of God's elect angels. And we've talked a little bit about that. The elect angels have a hierarchy where you talk about things like like, uh, archangels and cherubim and seraphim and principalities and so on. Well, the evil angels also have a hierarchy. And this particular one here must be very, very high up in that hierarchy because he's called a king. So he's way up here in the chain of command. Now, I don't think we can identify this angel as Satan. Angel's the one, or Satan is the one who unlocks that pit. But this is not the angel we're talking about here. Not the one named Abaddon and Apollyon. This is a high-ranking angel evil angel, but it's not Satan himself. Now, John is very careful to point out that these are not real locusts because of something that's said in the Bible much earlier earlier than this. Solomon said in Proverbs 30, verse number 27, the locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. A locust, these swarms of locusts, move very methodically, even though they don't have a leader. But I think that John points out here that there is a leader over these to show us that he's not talking about some insect. I mean, he's just relating locusts because that comes to his mind as a way to describe them. But he's really talking about these, these evil angels, these demons. Now, another description that he gives, the next one, is like horses for battle. Verse number 7, and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. Now, that tells us that these demons go out with determination. They're organized. They say they have the king over them, someone's directing them. They're organized and they're chomping at the bit, waiting to get out of this bottomless pit, waiting to see who's going to be the first one to get out. The Old Testament In the Old Testament, the prophet Joel gave another preliminary glimpse of these very same demons. He wrote, The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, they shall leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. And so this appears to John as horses prepared for battle. Third thing he says about them is they have heads with crowns, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. Now, the purpose of the crowns is to speak of their invincibility. I can imagine that as John is writing this, he's thinking about Rome, and he's thinking about legions of Roman armies, and he's thinking about the invincible power of Rome. At John's time, Rome pretty much had their way any place that they wanted to go. I mean, the Jews fell to the power of Rome. They had everything that they wanted. So I think that that's what John had on his mind. Now, of course, again, if these were real, if these were real locusts, then what men would do, they'd just jump in a crop duster and start spraying spraying them with insecticides. I mean, like Calvinist pesticides. They would try to get rid of them all and spray them and wipe them out. But the result is the same, and that is the pesticides are harmless, just like those other pesticides were harmless against our doctrine, of course. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. 
Uh, Number four, another description he gives, human faces. And their faces were as the faces of men. Now, that tells us that these demons are intelligent. We're not talking about an insect here. We're talking about something that's intelligent. They aren't blindly hurting people. I mean, they have a cold, calculated method to their attacks. They know exactly what they're doing. And they are so intelligent that they're able to anticipate the moves of those who try to avoid them. They're smarter than you are and smarter than me. A fifth description that he gives, he says they have hair like women. And they had hair as the hair of women. Now, men, I I wouldn't encourage you to try this at home. The next time that your wife goes to the beauty shop, when she comes home, notice her and tell her how good she looks. Don't tell her, well, your hair looks like a bunch of demon locusts. Don't do that. The hair here, I think, has something to do with the seduction. Saying they have hair like women has something to say about the seduction of these locusts. I remember when my dad used to preach on this. this way back in the, in the 70s, he would preach on this. And at that time, he... He liked to relate this hair like women to hippies. Sorry, Bob, but uh, hair <laughs> to hair, the hair like women was like hippies. And uh, he liked to make a point out of that. He said they're just like demon locusts is what those hippies are. But anyway, I think the hair here talks about the seduction of these, of these uh, demons. So people, you know, they get very interested in the occult and things like that, like I mentioned just a moment ago. And the devil knows exactly how to suck you in. He knows, I mean, he sets the trap. He's alluring. He, he tries to get you into that trap. Now, the next thing that John says about them, he says they have teeth like lions, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. The scriptures refer to Satan as a roaring lion, uh, Satan loves to, to sink his teeth into those that are unsuspecting. Now, there's a peculiar aspect, really, of a lion's bite. I mean, the jaws of a lion are so strong that when it bites, it can actually snap the spinal cord of an animal with ease. You ever watch Animal Planet? You ever noticed how an animal attack or a lion attacks another animal? The thing he does, he jumps on his back and he hits right for the back of the neck. And the lion with those strong jaws can snap the back of the neck of that, of that animal. And what happens is, if, if the, if the uh, animal doesn't die from the lion's bite, and perhaps he, you know, the lion is not successful in actually breaking his neck, and if this animal is able to escape, the animal's not out of trouble. Because a lion's mouth contains a bacteria that's, that's very, very infectious and, and disease-causing. And so what happens many times when an animal escapes a lion that the wound that he receives does not completely heal, but that wound keeps breaking open again and again and again. And so we could think of it this way, that, that um, these demon scorpions infect men. They can bite them over and over again if they so choose. Now, I remember, oh, it was many, many years ago, I was out in the country one time, and I was going up to a, to a house of some people I didn't know, but I walked up to the house, and there were these two little yapping dogs that ran out of the house. And they were really trying to look menacing. They were barking and carrying on like they were going to tear me to pieces. And I looked at those little dogs, and I thought, little fleas, they can't hurt anything. Well, one of those little dogs came up behind me, and with razor-like sharp teeth, he sunk his teeth into my Achilles tendon. That hurts. And I think about these demon locusts. They're not as big as lions because 
John doesn't compare them to that in that way. He says they look more like locusts. Now, they're probably something maybe smaller, but imagine those, those sharp little teeth that are able to bite people and what the pain that's going to come from that. So this is what John is thinking about as he sees these, these demons come out. Now, he says one other thing about them, one other description. He describes their torsos as armor, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. Now, again, I think that John is probably thinking about Roman soldiers of his time. The soldier would wear a breastplate, and, of course, he wore that to protect himself from arrows. Uh, it was worn to protect from daggers and from, from swords. And so these demons, to John, were just like row after row of an advancing Roman army. And they're able to come and just mow down people with ease. There's no resisting them. Now, the picture, and here's where we get... Uh, perhaps to the doctrinal part of the message tonight, and I'm almost through, so don't get, don't get panicky when I start talking about doctrine. But uh, the picture that we have here is a picture of helplessness for unbelievers. Now, that's the way that God often deals even today with the unbeliever. There are people that will persistently and scornfully reject the gospel of Christ. And so often what God will do, he'll let a person persist in his sin. He'll allow him to continually reject the gospel. And then God hymns that person up. He sews him up in disbelief, and that person becomes gospel-hardened. That's what we call it sometimes. They're gospel-hardened. They've heard it so many times. They will not believe it. They keep rejecting it, rejecting it. And there is simply no impassioned plea that anyone could ever make that would phase a person like that. And so these are the kinds of people that come to church and they hear a gospel message. They hear about the death of Christ for sinners. They listen to the preacher explain how that Christ willingly took our sins upon himself. He took our punishment. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was crucified. He was put into a tomb. They can listen to that. And they sit there and they mock and they make fun of and they laugh at this whole prospect that they're sinners and they're on their way to hell. You know, I've related a few times to you a little bit of my father's testimony. Uh, he went to church. If you remember, or some of you may remember, the first time uh, he went to church was to hear his cousin preach. Now, this was a cousin that ran around with my dad all of the time, and, and uh, they were both evil. Now, my dad was not a, a drinking man or anything like that. He, he, you know, he, we wouldn't, most people wouldn't consider him to be a very bad guy at all. But, but he didn't care anything about Christ. He was a sinner. He was lost. He didn't care anything about the things of God. And this cousin that he ran around with was the same way. And so his cousin got saved. He went off and went to school and learned how to be a preacher, got some studying and came back. And so my dad went to church for the very first time to hear his cousin preach. And his intention was not to listen to the message, but to make fun, just to mock him. Make fun of him while he preached. He couldn't believe that this guy could actually have some kind of religion. And so during the entire service, he listened to the preaching, and he was mocking and talking and make fun, making fun of his cousin. But when the service was over, the Holy Spirit got hold of him, and he couldn't resist. And that's the way the Holy Spirit works. He couldn't resist any longer. And after mocking and making fun of After the service was over, there was a preacher's wife who led him to the Lord. 25 years old, never heard the gospel before, and most of the time listening to it, he was just mocking and making fun. But the Holy Spirit got hold of him, and my dad repented. He believed, and he never looked back. 
Well, that time, God was gracious. And in this age that we live in today, God is gracious. But at any time that God wants, he can withdraw his mercy and his grace. You see, God's not obligated to any of us. God doesn't have to give us mercy. He doesn't have to give us grace. At any time that he wants to, God can decide to withdraw that. And so God can actually leave a person dead in their sins, unbelieving. And no person is ever going to come to Christ unless God first works in his heart to make him willing to come. And so what God does here, he just stops the processes. He doesn't work in that person's heart to bring them to belief. So God won't allow them to become willing. That sounds kind of strong, but that's the way that God works because he has the power of life and death. He has the power to convict. He has the power to bring a person to Christ. God can choose any way that he decides to go. Now, I've said, said it over and over again in this study that one day, the day of God's grace will be over. And when it's over, there's only one thing that people can look forward to. It's things like we've been talking about tonight. Demons loose from a pit of hell, hordes like scorpions going and stinging people and inflicting pain. Now, my purpose here in telling you all these things tonight, and really with the title of the message, is that if you're lost without Christ, what you are doing every time that you hear the gospel and you reject it, what you are doing is you are knocking on hell's door. And I'm sorry to tell you that each sin that you commit... And the longer that you persist in that sin, you are knocking and knocking and knocking time after time after time on hell's door. And what's going to happen one of these days is that somebody's going to answer that door. And that's when it's too late. There's no turning around. There's no belief. There's no repentance. There's nothing. God won't allow it. And so I encourage anybody here tonight, if you are knock, knock, knocking on hell's door, stop it. Because someday somebody's going to answer the door. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time spent together tonight around your word. Lord, help us to really understand how important it is for every person to know Jesus Christ right now as personal Savior. These things that we're talking about tonight could, in fact, become a very much a reality in the very near future. Things could be set in motion even tonight while we speak. It's imperative on every person to believe the gospel, and it's also imperative on us to tell the gospel to lost sinners who need to hear it. Bless in this time of invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.